Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily and welcome to Master Leadership Through Crisis series, where we will connect with leaders worldwide to gain insights on important questions to help us navigate through rough waters. If you would like to participate as a guest, or if you have a question that you would like to ask a guest, go to masterleadership.org for more information. Over a long career as a trauma surgeon, Dr. Turner Osler has led hundreds of teams with constantly changing compositions, but always a single goal, getting a patient off the operating table and into the ICU alive. At a level one trauma center, the operating room team is rarely the same twice. There's a constantly changing group of surgical residents, medical students, anesthesiologists, circulating nurses, scrub nurses, blood bank technicians, x-ray technicians, the list goes on. But a single person has to control every aspect of the operating room if it is to function smoothly. It can be a stressful environment, with people running and sometimes CPR in progress, and there's little time for team-building exercises. What he's found, however, is that by asking rather than telling, it's possible to be seen as a part of a team rather than a prima donna surgeon. His approach is actually borrowed from Lao Tzu, who said a leader is bad when he or she is feared, not so good when he or she is loved by the people, but best when he or she is hardly noticed. And the people say, we did this ourselves. At the end of the case, Turner's goals was that everyone in the room felt that they had personally saved a life. On his best days, he succeeded. Dr. Osler is a retired academic trauma surgeon turned research epidemiologist. He is the CEO and founder of QOR360, a company specializing in active seating products for homes, offices, and schools designed to help alleviate problems caused by sitting. Dr. Osler and his team are passionate to help educate a new generation on active sitting and support an aging population with back pain. As a physician who's suffered from a tyranny of conventional chairs for most of his life, Dr. Osler's quest for a healthier way to sit led him to develop the Bedrocker, a new geometric solid, the eccentric bicylinder. This shape is central to QOR360's ergonomic, healthy, and active sitting products. Dr. Osler is an eloquent speaker who wishes to raise awareness of the benefits of active sitting. While he understands that people need to get work done while they sit, he also meets people where they are and improve posture in the process. Welcome, Dr. Turner Osler. How are you? Very well. It's great to be here. Well, we're so happy to have you on our podcast. Are you ready to pour into our listeners? I'm delighted to go at it. Let's go. Fantastic. All right. Turner, can you tell us a bit about your path 
to leadership and what you're doing now? You know, leadership is something that I tried to avoid from the very beginning. When I was in the Boy Scouts, you know, it was great. We were running around the woods and we were having fun and doing stuff. But it turned out, you know, somebody had to organize food for the camping trip and stuff like that. And for whatever reason, I got tagged with being the patrol leader. And then I got tagged with being the senior patrol leader. I had to go to meetings and this and that and the other thing so that we could all have fun. But there was a whole lot of organizational stuff and where to dig the latrine and all. Early on, you don't want to be in a leadership position because a lot of darn work. But you just can't get away from it, you know? So I went to medical school and then I became a surgeon and you can't help it. When you're in the operating room, suddenly you're in charge of a team of people. And whether you mean to or not, in order to be a good surgeon, you have to learn how to take a room full of people, some of whom you have never really spent any time with before, maybe don't even know, and weld them into a team that can, you know, get a job done. I was a trauma surgeon. So, you know, people come in with gunshot wounds or car wrecks and they might die unless we can get organized and doing well immediately. So, you know, over time you develop techniques to take a room full of people who are possibly even strangers to each other and try and build a team that can function quickly. And, you know, there are techniques to do that. You know, some people are motivated best by praise, you know, and some by a challenge. You have to quickly size people up to be able to um, get the best out of them. And so I did that for many years. And then I went on to run a trauma service at the University of New Mexico. And now you have a much bigger team of surgeons and nurses and techs and respiratory techs and OR techs. And, you know, trying to get a big group fused to a big project running a trauma center is the same skill set, but read on a larger canvas. So that's kind of how I learned what I know about it. I didn't learn it on purpose. I learned it because I had to learn it, but I got to test it every single day, which is a great way to learn things. And most recently, I became an emeritus professor here at the University of Vermont, where I do research. And so I have a research team, which is now trying to fuse the talents of medical students and database people and PhD statisticians, and with the idea of coalescing around a project to make sense out of some public health problem or some data set. It's the same skill set, you know, trying to get people all on the same page, working in the same direction. And now, and most lately, I started a startup because nobody else was working on the catastrophic problem of sitting disease. And it's different now because I'm working with a team of people who have skills that I simply don't have and probably never will. When I was working in medicine and in statistics, I knew the material. And so leadership was a matter of just applying what I knew. Now I lead a team of people that is doing web marketing of unusual kind of chair. And this involves SEO and graphic design and website development and, you know, all kinds of things that really I don't know anything about because Frankly, I don't just come from another century. I come from another millennia, right? I come from the 20th century. And here I am in the 21st century, you know, trying to figure out how search engine optimization works. And, you know, luckily, you know, I have a team of 20-somethings who seem to enjoy it, if you can imagine that. So it's a different team with a completely different mission, but the structures and the relationships are all the same. I love listening to your story because you weave a lot of different things. When I think of trauma and I think of surgeons, you know, these are people who are very, very smart, who know 
what they need to do. And if I'm in trauma, I want to be led by someone who knows what they're doing. But something that's so important in the things that you were saying is that in leadership, like you were already thinking about building a team, that's a different skill set. No, it's a completely different skill set. And some people have it and some people not so much. You know, a story we tell in surgery is that everybody is motivated by different things, some by love, some by praise, some by this, that, or the other thing. But Sir William Halstead, inventor of the surgery residency, discovered that everyone was adequately motivated by terror. And that's how surgery programs were run for the longest time, was just by being ruthlessly firing people and yelling at them. And, you know, I could tell you stories about, you know, just how inhumane and counterproductive the training of surgeons has been in the United States, certainly, and around the world, probably. And I came in for at least some of that when I was training in the bad old days in the 70s and 80s. So, you know, I've seen very bad leadership. And, um, you know, that's really a spur to do a better job. I've also engaged in very bad leadership myself, you know, because I never really had any formal training. Uh, Here's a story, you know, if you are like operating on some kid who's been run over by a car and their liver is in shreds and they're bleeding to death on the operating table, and you discover that you can't make it stop, start crying, the whole room falls apart and you cannot give any help to anybody. So, you know, you learn quickly that at least in public, you have to project absolute confidence, especially when you don't have it. (laughs) Right, right. You know, I love how authentic you are and transparent and just real. I love how when you talked about building a team, you also saw the value of people and you saw their strengths and their challenges, which says a lot about your leadership. And I want to honor that. I don't think I'm remotely special. I think every good leader figures this out. And right. possibly it took me longer than most, which is why I remember all the steps along the way. Right. But see, that's another thing about you. And I'll tell you later, I'm going to write this word down. (laughs) But not every doctor, not every surgeon becomes a good leader. They can spend the rest of their lives doing what they were taught to do in the same way, you know, as an educator, teaching and leading are two different things. And so those are skills that need to be taught. And so that's why we're talking here because my purpose is to up-level leadership in our listeners, in each other, and so continue to grow. So thank you so much for that. Now, you talked about a startup, which is really fantastic. You talked about a chair, and I've been looking at this chair because all of us need to sit and we need to sit right. Tell us about your startup, where we can connect with you, and how we can buy this amazing product. So it turns out that people sit a lot. <laughs> on average, eight or 10 or even 12 hours a day. This has been carefully measured and epidemiologists have written about it in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association. I mean, we sit a lot. The thing is that we are designed to be hunter-gatherers for the last 3 million years, ever since we you know, climbed out of arboreal canopy and set foot on the plains of the Serengeti. You know, we've gone from being just gatherers to being hunter-gatherers. And so we've been traveling five or 10 or 15 miles a day for the last 3 million years. And our internal biochemistry, our milieu interior has become accustomed to a lot of exercise. And so when we suddenly all sat down, really less than 100 years ago, 
and stopped moving basically all day long, it was a catastrophe because your muscles aren't just motor units that move your bones. They're very complicated biochemical factories that have you know, hormones and messenger molecules that are secreted. And without the kind of output that the muscles provide, your biochemistry just goes to hell. Your bad cholesterol goes up, your good cholesterol goes down, your insulin goes up, and your all-cause mortality goes up. People lose, on average, two years of life who sit eight or 10 hours a day solely because of sitting. It's well worked out by the epidemiologists, and it's really a public health crisis, but it's a silent crisis. You may have heard that sitting is the new smoking, you know, and that analogy applies uh, quite strictly because in the 50s, everybody smoked and they thought it was normal. Doctors smoked for crying out loud. Fake doctors were advertising cigarettes on television, right? And people thought smoking was normal because everyone around them smoked. It turned out that wasn't true, that smoking was catastrophically bad for people, emphysema, heart disease, lung cancer. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But it wasn't understood because everybody smoked, and so it was thought to be normal. Just so with sitting. Everybody sits all the time. And because when you look around, everybody around you is sitting in the same crummy office chairs, we think sitting is normal. It is not. We're hunter-gatherers, and we should be out chasing rabbits and running from jackals. But as an epidemiologist, it's not an easy problem to solve. I trained with a storied epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins University, Susan Baker. And you know, she taught all of us that you could not belittle or berate people into better behavior. It can't be done. You can't tell people drive slower or don't drive drunk or you, you just can't. What you must do is you must design an environment that is safer for people so that their thoughtless behavior doesn't penalize them. And so my mission was to take everybody's going to sit. So how can we make sitting less toxic? Wow. And the idea is it's not sitting per se. It's sitting slumped in front of your computer still all day long that is such a catastrophe for your biochemistry, your posture, uh, your core strength, and subsequently back pain. So how do you solve that problem? Well, after thinking about it hard, you know, we invented a way to make a chair that moves just a little bit the whole time you're sitting on it. And not with motors or anything, just by requiring you to balance on top of the chair. Because it requires muscular input to stay balanced, your core muscles are constantly working. So when I was in my surgical days, you know, we'd be like snipping people open to take out their gallbladder. I mean, you go through the internal and external like the transfer sales. And these muscle layers were so filmy and thin, you could see through them. You know, you think, boy, oh boy, where did their muscles go, right? Well, the answer is their muscles left. If all you do is sit slumped in front of a computer, your body looks around and says, I'm not using these muscles. I don't need them for crying out loud. I'll digest those muscles and do something more useful with them. As Hippocrates observed 2,000 years ago, that which is used develops, and that which is not used wastes away. And people's core musculature just evaporates when they sit stock still slump eight hours a day. If you put people on an unstable surface so they have to constantly rebalance their postures, they get way more exercise than they think. We sell these chairs and we tell people, you know, just 15 or 20 minutes the first day and see how you feel the next day. You may be so deconditioned, it'll take a week or possibly weeks to work up to being able to sit on our chair all day long. But if you can make that transition, 
now you're done. Anytime you sit on a chair, you're getting exercise. One of the big problems with exercise that we now know people absolutely require for good health and longevity is that people don't really want to exercise. You know, you tell them to walk up the stairs and to park a long way from the building and, and go for a jog. You know, that, that happens for some people, but it doesn't happen for a lot. Because they have to make the decision every day, I'm going for a jog and it's raining or it's cold or I'm tired or I don't know what, and it doesn't happen. The business of active sitting, all you have to do is make the decision once. I'm gonna get rid of my crappy office chair and get myself an active chair. And now every day, the decision has already been made. You're gonna get some exercise regardless because merely sitting on your chair is going to give you some exercise every day. That is fascinating. And I love that you call it active sitting. Are you sitting in one of those chairs? I sit in one of those chairs constantly, but right now I'm talking to you from a hotel room and I'm sitting on one of these crappy office chairs. And I gotta say, I sit down on it and I think, what is wrong with this chair? I can't get it to move, you know? So we've worked out hacks for people who are stuck with, you know, crappy office chairs. Move to the front of the chair, balance on your ischial tuberosities, put your feet flat on the floor, and now you can at least not be caught in the slump that comes with leaning against the back of a chair. I study Tai Chi, and the guy who teaches Tai Chi, famous guy, says, the back of your chair is so you have a place to hang your coat. If you feel like you need to lean against the back of your chair, you should go home and take a nap. <laughs> so where can we get this chair? So I had this idea for making an active chair, but as an epidemiologist, you know, I know that it's not a solution unless everybody can afford it. So I fell in with a group of designers here in Burlington, Vermont, because I had an idea for how to make such a chair, but I had no idea how to design or build or manufacture anything. I didn't get out much for the last 30 years. I was a surgeon for crying out loud. So anyway, but these guys had real design shops. They trained at Pratt in New York City. They knew a lot. And they tell that I have an idea. And they said, oh, doctor, let us help you. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. We have to make these things so goddamn cheap. Everybody can have one. And they said, we're in. You know, because they're really about just doing the right thing with design. You know, that's kind of their religion. It's their way of changing the world, really. And so when I said, you know, I want to make a chair that changes the way everybody sits and is so inexpensive, everybody can have one. They were all over it. And then you know, more people were attracted to the project and came online just as volunteers because it was the right thing to do. They very quickly settled on the model. You know, we're going to sell these things online because that way there's nobody else taking money out of the chair as it's trying to get to people. And so we can just charge less because we don't have to pay distributors or representatives or share companies or office supply companies, all of whom, you know, want a king's ransom to be distributing your chair. So we sell them online from our website. Everything happens in Vermont. We have a company in Northwest Vermont called Manufacturing Solutions Incorporated that assemble and box our chairs and send them out. So we sell them online. We tell people, you know, just order one. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, send it back. We'll pay postage both ways because, you know, we don't want to stick you with a chair you don't like. But really, it's not a problem because we have a return rate of about 4%. People love these things. So we're happy to send it out and just let people try it. It's all handled through our website. There's software that handles for the car labeling, prints the label and God knows what. And so really go to our website, look around. We have two or three different kinds of chairs. It takes less than a minute to put it together and most people are going to love it. 
I will add that we have one other chair that we have on our website that we give away. I had the idea that it was going to be hard to get people to change the way they sit because people have their ideas about things. Mm -hmm. As I was trying to get the big chair interested, you know, people like Steelcase and Herman Miller, I got as far as a vice president and they said, you know, the adults aren't going to be interested in sitting on a chair that moves. And I thought, boy, you know, that's discouraging because uh, these guys know a lot about chairs and selling chairs. They own the industry. And so... I got to thinking, well, you know, then you just need a group of people that aren't so hidebound about what a chair is. People have more imagination, you know, people who aren't so... I love that. Yes. Like kids. Yes. And so we tried out some of these chairs and they love them, you know, because kids automatically want to squirm and you let them move and they just love, it's like sanctioned squirming. Nobody will yell at you to sit still on a chair that's supposed to move in the first place, right? Love it. But the problem is, you know, kids don't have any money and schools can't afford glitter for their preschoolers art projects. Right. So how does that work? And so we thought, okay, fine. It's a design problem. Right. So we'll design a chair that's really, really inexpensive. And I'm sort of a closet mathematician. So what would be really inexpensive? How about free? Let's do chairs that are free. Okay. So we cooked up the design that you just make out of plywood. You cut it with a CNC router so you can like stamp the pieces out like a cookie cutter out of plywood. The pieces fit together and lock together with a self-locking joint that we invented. And for a rocking mechanism, we use a tennis ball. We put a tennis ball in there and then the thing rocks in all directions. Hey leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. Gallup CEO Jim Clifford has pointed out that an increasing number of people in the world are miserable, hopeless, suffering, and becoming dangerously unhappy. Something is profoundly wrong, and it must be addressed. Redefining the Top 1% by Dr. Trevor Blattner is a unique step-by-step system for developing authentic leadership by becoming the role model your team deserves. For leaders looking to achieve the top 1% in their influence without sacrificing their character and convictions, redefining the top 1% is the ultimate guide. By providing a powerful set of tools to use immediately, redefining the top 1% focuses on recognizing one's strengths to create a personalized journey towards powerful, real-world leadership. Order now and get your bonuses by visiting drtrevorblattner.com forward slash book. That's D-R-T-R-E-V-O-R-B-L-A-T-T-N-E-R.com forward slash book. Do you get headaches or don't feel quite right after a glass or two of wine? Well, you're not alone. I recently discovered organic, clean crafted wines that are a game changer for me. Scout and Cellar has a clean crafted commitment to ensure that they produce wines without synthetic chemicals as they take care of the earth in the process. I can now enjoy wine without any adverse effects. Visit scoutandcellar.com forward slash lily. That's S-C-O-U-T-A-N-D-C-E-L-L-A-R dot com forward slash L-I-L-Y and learn more about these delicious wines. You'll be glad you did. Great leaders deserve great wines. We tried out the first batch of these at a middle school here in Burlington, Vermont, 
and went back a few weeks later and the kids had worn holes in the tennis balls. They were like so enamored with moving around. So I had to change up the designs. Okay, fine. You can wear out tennis balls. Let's see you wear out these lacrosse balls. You know? <laughs> and they haven't been able to wear those out. So we set up another website. We call it buttonchairs.org. So it's uh, B-U-T-T-O-N-C-H-I-R-S.org. And the button is because the seat kind of looks like a button, but it's also a double entendre for the middle schoolers, but on chair. Okay. <laughs> so I have button chairs and, and people have downloaded the file to cut these things out of plywood over a thousand times. We've got people doing this in New Zealand and Australia and Taiwan and different places in the United States. Uh, another school in Essex, Vermont is getting ready to make a hundred of them because many schools in the United States have CNC routers. So they can just, older kids in shop class can stamp these things out by the hundreds. You know, we're just delighted to have our design propagate through the world. It's very cool because, you know, mailing furniture someplace, you need a box, you need postage, it's a nightmare. But if you just send them the CNC router file, it's an email attachment. You can send it all over the world. Once it gets where it's going, you put this computer code into your CNC router and it just starts making chairs. And nobody charges you tax or duty because you can't tax zeros and ones. It's just a computer file that we send to people. And if you have a CNC router, it just turns into not one chair, but as many chairs as you want. It's a project that I love. Actually, I did a TED talk on button chairs, a TEDx talk in Stowe, Vermont about a year ago. You know, I kind of just tell the story of how we came to the idea of giving away a design so kids could have chairs that move. Mm, I love your heart because... You know, one of the things that I see in you is that you, as a surgeon, as a doctor, you saw a problem in people and you didn't have to be someone who creates a chair. You could have just had a lot of patience and been okay with that, but you saw a problem. It bothered you and you wanted to prevent it. And so you went so far as to design and create a company, which I love. You also see the value of people and you want to help. Your generosity is amazing. You also see that you want to make it affordable to people. And that's what leadership to me is someone who sees a problem, someone who sees that there's a need and doesn't just wish that someone else will fix it. You went ahead and moved forward and started to make the moves. Wait, wait, hold on. Another thing is that you don't let obstacles stop you. You keep plowing ahead and you are the king of suspense because I still am waiting for the website so I can purchase mine. <laughs> My son will tell you, he's, I'm like the world's worst businessman. Right. So we have a website that sells grown-up chairs. It's Q as in queen, QOR360.com. QOR like core. We couldn't get core because that was taken. So QOR360.com. I was going to inject that the real skill that I have is just being completely ignorant. I had no idea just exactly how hard this was or I wouldn't have started. But, you know, as a surgeon, it's an odd thing. You really need basically psychopaths to be surgeons, and especially trauma surgeons, because you have to be able to walk into a room with water dripping off of your elbows and be able to say the sentence, I don't know what's wrong, but I'm sure I can fix it. That's hubris. You know, you are cruising for a fall, buddy, because it just can't be so, at least not every time. But you have to be able to say that sentence and at least convince the room that it's true, even if you can't quite convince yourself, in order to do the job. 
just be willing to take on a project even not exactly understanding the dimensions of how hard it might turn out to be. And, you know, if you get lucky and work hard, sometimes it all turns out fine. But with this chair project, you know, I had no idea what I was getting into, but, you know, I had the confidence that it was worth doing and, you know, worth failing at if it comes to that. But so far we're doing okay. Well, great. Thank you so much for that. So right now we're hopefully on the tail end of this global pandemic. Tell me about any advice or quotes or practices that you use that help you most during crisis? Well, about the pandemic, I've written about a half a dozen editorials about how to respond to the pandemic and ventilators and masks and vaccines and this and that that are, have been published mostly in Vermont newspaper, VT Digger. I'm really engaged in the COVID project. Also, our research group here at the University of Vermont has published several papers on social capital, how places where people are more inclined to be networked and take care of each other have really had a much less awful experience with COVID. It turns out to be part of the problem America has experienced with COVID is just there isn't enough social cohesion in some places to allow people to protect one another. So I thought a lot about COVID and the catastrophe that it's caused. And that's sort of a segue, I guess, to say that, you know, one of my mantras is, you know, if there's a problem, the first thing is to understand it. So I and my team of researchers here at the University of Vermont spent quite a lot of time, you know, diving into the data on COVID-19 and trying to understand why it was that some places had really much higher rates of transmission than others. And, you know, if we can understand why that's happening, we can perhaps help insulate or protect ourselves from the next pandemic. And interestingly, one of the most potent predictors of whether a county is going to do well with this current pandemic is the level of education. It seems as though education serves to protect a population from the horrors of a pandemic. Now, it's very hard to tease out why that is. You know, it might just be that people who are more broadly educated in science are more tractable when it comes to taking standard public health measures. I don't know exactly. You know, I'm an emeritus professor. I've been a professor for most of my life in the Department of Surgery. Also taught the mathematics and statistics along the way. And, you know, those of us in the game believe that education in and of itself is a noble calling and perhaps the most important thing a person can do. But it turns out that it has real life consequences beyond just helping people think more clearly about the Renaissance or you know, understand how planets move around the sun. It has the real world consequences of whether people die in a pandemic because the better educated the population is, the less likely they are to contract COVID and die. So when you're teaching, you're teaching more than you think you're teaching. Oh, yes, I absolutely agree. You know, when I think of education and leadership, I believe that leadership needs to be taught in schools as well, because a lot of that is social emotional skills, which we don't really teach as much as I wish we would. So as a lifelong learner, what are you learning right now? I'm learning how much smarter these 20-somethings are than I am. <laughs> Aren't they? It's astonishing. And I feel just so grateful that they'll put up with having somebody from the last millennia around because I really am a heavy lift as they're trying to explain SEO to me and the difference between Twitter and Facebook, you know, because all of that stuff is of not much interest to me. I still read books, but they're extremely patient at trying to help bring me up to speed without embarrassing me. <laughs> Love that. 
And so when you think of leadership, Turner, when you think of leadership today, what most concerns you and what are you most hopeful about? I'm most concerned that people in positions of leadership don't seem to be very interested in being leaders. That to me is deeply puzzling. I mean, why did you spend your life getting to a position of leadership if you're not interested in leading? That's odd and dangerous, right? I mean, you know, all the Democrats vote one way and all the Republicans vote another way. It makes it seem like nobody's doing any thinking at all. So I'm puzzled why leadership or our system of embodying leadership seems to select for no real leading. So that troubles me a lot. Mm-hmm. Gives me hope, of course, is I brush up against these 20-somethings all the time. And, you know, they're bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, hardworking, interested in everything, and they want to make a difference. And, of course, they're a little horrified at the world we seem to be leaving them. And, frankly, I'm getting tired of apologizing, you know, because uh, it's not all my fault. (laughs) (laughs) Kudos to you because you are doing things to make it a better world. In us having conversations like this, too, we're hoping to leave a legacy that uplifts and gives people hope. And so I really honor that. Thank you so much for that. Now. You do have an option here. You can either take a question from a former guest, or you can share a challenge, a struggle, or a failure that you learned from. Why don't I take a challenge question and just see what happens? Let's see what happens. Okay. Catherine Mora wants to know, what does thought leadership mean to you? Boy, oh boy. Catherine, I wish you hadn't said that because my team of 20-somethings keeps saying, you know, if we're going to get the idea of these chairs out in the world, we have to make you, and then they point at me over Zoom, a thought leader. And it just makes me break out in a cold sweat because I have no idea what a thought leader is. And certainly I don't presume to be one and I have no idea how to become one. So, you know, when these 20-somethings have the idea that I should be a thought leader, it's really kind of intimidating. You know, that said, I think a thought leader is somebody who stays abreast of a topic and then finds a platform so that they can share. For example, COVID-19 came along and I was just deluged with questions from friends and acquaintances about how many times do I have to scrub my Amazon cardboard boxes and how long should I leave them on the front porch? You know, I've been to medical school and studied virology and epidemiology and a bunch of other ologies. And I was able to say, you know, you don't have to worry about the box. The box is not the problem. This is a respiratory virus that's transmitted through the air. And this was like quite a revelation to people. But I found, you know, a lot of people had a lot of questions. So I wrote a bunch of editorials. And then I started doing kind of town hall meetings for groups that were very concerned about interacting with other people. People in the Feldenkrais world, it's kind of body work where they work one-on-one and they had lots of questions about when it would be safe to be in a room with another person. People from the world of Alexander Technique. I was doing town hall meetings on Zoom with hundreds of participants asking me questions. And basically I was, you know, an echo chamber for Fauci, you know, science of it, question and answer format to make this kind of information available to a population. And to get this stuff out into the world as quickly as I could, we started putting up COVID-19 articles on our website that sells chairs. We have a blog, so I just started blogging on the horrors of sitting and, oh yes, you know, ventilators aren't going to solve the problem. The problem isn't ventilators, the problem is disease transmission, and really masks are the thing, not ventilators. 
This is about thought leadership, right? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. So anyway, maybe I'm sort of a thought popularizer in the world of COVID-19. I think in the world of active sitting, I may be closer to a thought leader because so much of the world of big chair is just about selling you the same old chair they've been selling you. They're bigger and they've got more chrome. And some of these office chairs cost three or even $4,000 now, but they're just the same old thing. 80% of America has back pain at some point in their lives. If these ergonomic chairs are so great, why does everybody still have back pain? It's a failed concept. I actually been to a bunch of academic ergonomic conferences about office furniture. And I was at one Ergo Expo in Las Vegas. And I met a guy who's very famous in the world of chair design, who was part of the team that designed the Herman Miller Aeron chair. You've probably seen them. There's 8 million of them out there. And, uh, you know, I sat down and talked to the guy for over an hour. And he was talking about chair design and companies and margins and profits and manufacturing and all this kind of stuff. And I was talking about epidemiology and anthropology and physiology. And it was an interesting conversation. He's a very smart guy, but, you know, he'd never been to medical school. And I don't know anything about the world of manufacturing chairs for offices, certainly. So anyway, it was a very spirited conversation. I get back to Burlington, Vermont. I find an email from this guy and he says, I feel terrible. I spent my life trying to make chairs that are so comfortable, no one wants to get up. And now you're telling me that sitting hunched all day is bad for people's posture. Wow ruins their core strength, ruins their biochemistry, and causes back pain. Wow. Our industry has convinced people they can't sit without lumbar support and a backrest and a headrest and armrest and footrest. We can't not give that to people because they expect it. They wouldn't buy a chair that doesn't have this stuff. What do you want me to do? And it suddenly came clear to me that big chair has this legacy problem where they've convinced the people who buy chairs that you've got to have all this junk or it's not a chair. And meanwhile, all this junk is just like locking people into a terrible configuration. What they ought to be doing is getting rid of all that junk so people can move while they're sitting. Completely different paradigm. Unfortunately, a multi-billion dollar industry is locked into the contemporary view of what a chair is. It's not gonna be easy to overturn the way the world thinks about sitting. These crappy chairs are killing people. You certainly personify thought leadership, especially in the space in which you operate right now, because you were able to influence this big time guy in the chair industry, at least to take a look to feel bad. And he did. And he did. I, I, feel, I, didn't, I didn't set out to make him feel bad. But rightly so, because you awakened something in him and hopefully that'll turn some things around. I liken it to what's going on in education. To me, my passion is leadership. And what kind of turned that on was the lack of leadership in schools and how we're not teaching that in schools. And consequently, we don't have really great leaders in this world yet. It's about influence. So I wrote down some words and I could be wrong. I wrote down about you that you occur as very curious. You practice listening you're intentional about listening. You're available to people because they're curious. They ask questions and you want to be available. You want that knowledge that you have to go through you. You're very caring. You're a great connector. You're a risk taker. And this is the first one I wrote down, humble. Because, <laughs> and let me tell you why. Because well, my son says I have a lot to be humble about. <laughs> but let me tell you why. And this is my personal story. I started this podcast because there were three things that happened. 
But one of them was I lost my sister at the age of 45 to cancer. And I lost her. And I believe this with all my heart a lot sooner than should have happened because of the egos of doctors in big time hospitals. And to meet you, to speak with you just gives me so much hope. And I'm getting emotional because I appreciate who you are as a surgeon. I've encountered surgeons, again, in big time hospitals in New York City that, you know, you trust with all your heart and the ego walks in before they do. Not all surgeons, obviously, but I've experienced that. And then I thought, well, who educated these surgeons? (laughs) And I take responsibility for my part. Now, I'm not as old. I'm just kidding. I was also born in the same century you were, but I'm taking responsibility just like you are. And I appreciate that. And I'm so honored to meet you. What a maverick you are. I love, love, love it. I also love that the 20 something year olds are looking to you and you are also humble enough to learn from them. I applaud you because not everybody does that. With that said, as a listener of this podcast, Turner, what is a question that you would like a future leadership guest to respond to? Are leaders born or are they made? People come into the world with a propensity to be good leaders, or do they just arise from circumstances that teach them how to lead a step at a time? I think my own path was just lucky. I was lucky to be burdened early on with running a Boy Scout camping trips, you know, and trying to understand that you couldn't tell somebody to do something unless you were willing to do it yourself. And really just doing it yourself would incite other people to do it. So you develop those kind of tools early on and, you know, discover what works. You know, telling people what to do pretty much didn't work, showing them what to do better and so on. So, so my prejudice is that, you know, people learn to be leaders. But also there are examples in history of extraordinary people that you just can't imagine having had time to learn how to be the leaders they became. The nature-nurture question is one that I think about all the time, not so much because it's a question we're going to resolve, because it's a question that creates more questions and lets us think harder about, well, if it is a nurture question, how do we nurture leadership? And, you know, I do want to respond with, I don't know if you know John Maxwell. No. Dr. John Maxwell, Google him. He Uh is one of the most effective leaders on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I am privileged to be mentored by him. His flagship book was the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership. And he addresses that very question. There are people who are born with leadership ability. They have charisma and all that stuff, but that doesn't make them a leader. Leadership is service. Leadership is adding value to people. Leadership is growing in wisdom and wisdom for me. This is what I've discovered. Wisdom and humility are very connected. You cannot, in my opinion, grow in wisdom without embracing humility. It just doesn't happen. That's my response to that, but that's a really good question. And I will pose it to another guest that comes on. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I've been doing, you know, a bunch of podcasts, but this is far away the most interesting one. I got to say, I'm so glad I discovered your podcast. I'm glad you did too. And thank you for that. That's an honor. So what do you want to leave our listeners with? Well, the world has a lot of difficulties and You aren't likely to be able to address all of them, but you might be able to address one of them, at least in part. And you might as well get started because 
why not? You know, and I have to say, I've had a terrific, rollicking time hanging out with surgical residents and statistics students, and now these 20-somethings that are trying to school me in, you know, how to do web marketing. You know, the privilege of hanging out with younger people has been really one of the gifts of my life. This has been a privilege for me. I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. Have a, a fantastic day. Yeah, thanks for making it so much fun. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite that leader in you.